You're listening to Straight Talk Wealth with your experts in all aspects of wealth accumulation, preservation, and income guaranteed to last a lifetime. And now, more Straight Talk Wealth with your host, Bruce Whitey. Hey, welcome back to the final segment of this special CD and podcast version of Straight Talk Wealth Radio. See, I told you when we do these CD versions, you get a lot more. I mean, uh, we're we're taking this topic in detail today. Uh, This show is about addicted to stimulus. Can the Federal Reserve get us through rehab? Hey, this is great. And um, we heard from Mark Faber who just looks up market trends and tops the markets and we're a little less demographically oriented than Harry S. Dent. We heard some comments from him in the first uh, segment of the show. Uh, We have been listening to an interview that I conducted exclusively with Harry S. Dent. We had him on the phone for about 40 minutes. You're hearing most of all of that interview in this CD. So uh, uh, congratulations. It's uh, kind of a pleasure to be able to, Sit and have had many a few dinners with Harry and been able to really shoot the breeze on all of this uh, on several occasions. And it's a pleasure doing the show. And we'll be bringing you a lot more uh, other uh, opinion leaders and um, very, very smart people, a lot smarter than me. I get to just pick their brains and ask them the questions. And uh, and uh, it's great. Anyway, hey, listen, so we're going to continue with this interview with Harry S. Dent. And uh, the next thing that I really want to pick up on is what the triggers are. So we've been hearing from Harry in the prior segment about this is a, a false picture. If you look at the economy and you look at the stock market, they are not the same. In fact, they're really quite divergent. Uh, he has told us that the reason the stock market is doing so well is basically because the money's got to go somewhere. And it's the very wealthy institutions and individuals that uh, are able to make these plays and are able to make markets. The little guy is not an influence here whatsoever. And and I'm going to come back in a little bit and talk about uh, why it's so important to understand who you are. Are you a saver or are you an investor? Because most of working America, really, when it comes down to it, are not professional investors. They are savers. Uh, investments would be the money that you know it's at risk and you might lose it, but a prepared investor only invests what they're willing to lose. Most of America has savings. Savings would be the money that you're not willing to lose, that your life will change. Your plans for your entire life will change if you have losses in it. And what they're doing is they're gambling with it anyway. And they've been schnookered. Uh, particularly Mr. Bernanke is particularly a factor in this. His game, his belief in the American economy is that if we've got to get everybody out of saving and everybody to an investing and you have what you have today, which is a wall street bubble. Now it's not the little guy that's causing that bubble. They're not enough of an influence to make that bubble. It is the institutional money, the very mega wealthy, which uh, you heard her, Harry say, I think it's something like 20% of the wealth of the 20% of the people in the country represent 50% of the wealth that, that are moving the markets and probably more of a piece of the market. So their money's moving around, they're professionals at it, or they have top professionals that manage it. And the guy with the 401k is, is, is left out in the cold. And 
I'm going to talk in a little bit about what's missing here. We covered this a little bit in the first segment, which is that that guy is supposed to have a pension. You know, a couple generations ago, working people didn't have to be professional investors in order to survive and think about having a retirement. It was something that was managed in a way with guarantees that guaranteed that if they were, it was just formulaic, just like cops still have it. Teachers still have it. You work here so many years and you achieve this age at this point, you're going to have these, this many inflation, uh, inflation index dollars coming on a paycheck to you guaranteed for the rest of your life, for the rest of you and your spouse's life. Well, that's what we specialize in at tax-free benefit specialists and at straight talk wealth radio. Those are the techniques that we are trying to get more middle America to participate in, which is a pension concept with guarantees. And the potential for these is nothing to sneeze at. It is not bank level growth, which is less than 1%. We're talking about potentially 7% guaranteed growth of an income-based account. Income-based means one day, the plan for this is your, there's two guarantees. One is the growth is guaranteed. And two is that when you go to take that money out, if you deplete the account because you've lived a long and full life, that payment of income is guaranteed for the rest of your life. And the reason far too much of middle America is worried about what the market's going to do and all of this risk is they don't have any guaranteed income. That can change. We deal with that. Uh, I'll give you more in that on that in a little bit, but um, later on in the show. But uh, if you want to find out more about that, from what you've heard just now, from what I've just told you, the number is triple eight 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 two five five seven eight triple eight 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 two five five seven eight. That's how you reach us. Uh, we do what's called a retirement roadmap. There is no charge for it. And it just looks strategically at what you have to accomplish between now and the time you retire, or if you're already retired, what you need to accomplish from here to whatever your life expectancy is. And then we just look at, you know, what does that mean? I mean, do you have to be making 7% on your money? Or is it going to require 12%? Are you already there? You know, it's um, one short aside, bear with me here and we'll get right back to the content. But I have to tell you the kinds of things that come up on these studies because it's rather interesting. I've seen people with great wealth walk into one of these studies and amazingly were unaware that they had great wealth in their eyes. They didn't have great wealth. I'm talking about uh, someone I worked on a while ago. He had uh, 10 million in stock and 10 million in real estate. He needed $120,000 to live on a year. And he was in his seventies. And I asked him, what are you worried about? And he's worried about inflation. And he was worried that he could use up all of his money. So when we did a retirement roadmap, we we took larger and larger amounts of inflation and lesser and lesser returns on the portfolio. And I could give him an exact inflation rate, uh, portfolio lack of growth and year that he would then be unable to sustain his lifestyle. So that was one set. I've had other people that are sure they're going to retire comfortably and they're dreaming. So within that whole spectrum, a retirement roadmap is where you start because it really tells you strategically how well you are set towards the goals that you have. Okay, so we'll get more into that later. Again, the number we can do that for free is 888-882-5578, 888-882-5578. But this is uh, what 
everyone's been waiting for. We did a survey before the show, some of our listeners, and the most common answer when I said, what do you want me to ask Harry about, is they wanted to know about triggers. What would trigger the next collapse of people running for the exits? So let's uh, pick up on that in this interview and see what Harry had to say about that. Hey, Harry, listen, we polled our listeners a little bit to kind of find out what questions they wanted me to ask you. And uh, most of what came up was uh, a question of triggers. Harry, what do you see are the triggers that are going to make things turn so severely that the world will start running for the exits? Well, the first thing to understand, and we saw this in 2008, I tell people a worldwide stock crash crash and a recession in many countries was triggered by four states in the United States having a subprime crisis. A subprime crisis concentrated in California, Nevada, Arizona, and Florida. Four states brought down the world. Now, four states can't bring down the world unless the world has a big problem. It was because demographics were starting to slow in most developing countries, and it was because debt had gone to two to three times the level as in the Roaring Twenties in any bubble in the history. That's what caused that the economy was greatly stretched. So when it's so stretched, it doesn't take much. So that's the first thing you got to understand. Right now, Spain, Portugal, Greece, three southern European countries, which, which keep falling into deeper recessions and depressions, 50% plus youth unemployment. Spain had the biggest real estate bubble in the U.S. High immigration came in. Now the immigrants are leaving because they don't have jobs. It, it's a mess. And those three states have the same population as those four states in the United States. I mean, those three countries. Mm-hmm. It caused the subprime bubble last time. So it could, Southern Europe could blow up. I just saw the other day, last night, some guy in Portugal has got a, a best-selling financial book, better selling than Fifty Shades of Grey, one of the leading fiction books in Portugal, and he's saying why Portugal should leave the euro. All it takes is one country to either you know, fail so badly that it can't be bailed out anymore or forced to be to leave the euro or choose to leave the euro. So a rupture, a rupture in the European Union. That's but- one thing. Rising interest rates is another trigger. What we see, Japan just had the most aggressive stimulus program announced in history, and at first their bond rates went from, I don't know, 0.7 down to 0.5%, which is unbelievably low for a bankrupt country, and now they've already moved back near 1%. I mean, if they keep going up, Japan has two, two and a half times GDP just in government debt, two and a half times what we have in the U.S. If interest rates go up 1% point, 2 percentage points, their interest will overwhelm them. Um, Rising interest rates here would, could help choke off the, the real estate recovery and the economic recovery. Uh, it's going against the Fed's trying to keep them down. At some point, private investors say, look, you're either going to create inflation here, which is less likely, or you know, you're going to have to exit. Right now, interest rates are going up in the U.S. because people are saying, God, the Fed, if the economy keeps doing pretty well, the Fed's going to have to back off at some point. If they stop buying their own bonds, the world's not going to come running. Mm-hmm. You know, because our economy's still anemic, and then there's plenty of other options, and they're low rates, so rates will have to rise. Japan's interest rates are rising for the more obvious reason that Japan said, we're going to get a two week. Japan, by the way, has had zero inflation and zero GDP growth on average for the last 16 years, what I call a coma economy. So they've gotten desperate and said, we're going to get 2% inflation, we're going to get some spending and GDP growth come hell or high water. Well, the bond markets look at that and say, well, they may be going to be buying more of their bonds, but they're absolutely serious about a 2% inflation rate. How can we be sitting at a half a percent yield with 2% inflation? These bonds should be at 25 3%. So if interest rates start to go up despite Fed attempts to hold them down, that's another trigger. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got, you know, massive, I mean, you've got China. Let's talk about emerging markets in China for a minute. Uh, you mentioned in your last newsletter, you said a vicious cycle is beginning wherein falling commodity prices hurt 
uh, emerging market exports, which hurts China's export, causes commodity prices to fall further, which hurts exports and so on. Could China and the emerging countries end up triggering the next global crisis instead of Europe? So explain that cycle. How does this work of this sort of dwindling cycle in the emerging markets and commodity prices? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, we've been saying for years now that commodity prices peaked in mid-2008. This is a 29 to 30-year cycle that works like a clock. We were looking for it. It happened. Prices went down, and there was a rally into April 2011, but did not go back to those highs, and we've been falling ever since. Emerging countries are not like us, especially in their stock markets. Their stock markets are dominated, most of them, by some large companies that export resources and commodities and then the financial institutions that that finance them. I first realized this even in Australia, which is a developed country. But, But their stock market fell more than ours did in 2008. They didn't have a recession. They didn't have a banking crisis, a housing meltdown, anything. You know, and, and, and somebody said, well, the reason is our top companies, our top companies that dominate our valuation, six companies are three banks and three big resource exporters, and they got hit. And so the stock market went down. That's the way emerging countries are. Mm-hmm. They're ex- they rely on heavy exports of commodities. Commodity prices go down. Their industry slow. Their best industries and jobs slow. Their stock market goes down. Emerging markets are down or 20% off their highs while U.S. markets and German markets are making new highs. They've been underperforming since April 2011, and they correlate more with commodity prices than other stock markets. So this is a vicious cycle. Commodity prices slow down because of slowing demand and a bubble bursting, and that hurts the exports and stock prices of these emerging countries. Now emerging countries are China's biggest customers. Yeah, I think that's the crux of this. And then so China's exports slow down, and then but China consumes most of the raw materials from these exports emerging countries, so that slows their exports to China, and boom, 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 and then commodity prices keep going. It is a vicious cycle, and I'm, I think because of so much stimulus and bailouts, they can kind of, they've been able to contain the European crisis to a minor recession on average. They, they can't turn it around, but they can keep it from turning into an outright depression. But this may just come from the outside, from left field. I mean, if the emerging countries in China start slowing dramatically, what's going to hold up the economy? It's the last leg because Europe's in recession. The U.S. is taking massive stimulus to create 2% growth at best on average. And the emerging markets is still creating most of the growth in the world. If they go, Uh, He sounds aggravated. Hey, so the next thing I did is I asked Harry about, um, all right, so this is all doom and gloom. It's all world's coming to end. Every corner we look, there's a problem, and it's true. So what are we doing wrong? Where's the light at the end of the tunnel? So let's uh, take a listen to uh, his response on this. So Harry, when, when I listen to you, I get I get that we're having a, a global crisis. I get that the whole world is is going down the tubes here. So uh, you know it's it's depressing. But my question is, what are we doing wrong? I mean, you know, is it, are we just here to say that the world is coming to the end and apocalypse now? What what is the world not getting right that it needs to get right? What's the other side? Where's the light at the end of all this darkness? That that you know, if we just did things right, uh, per your theories here, we we could we could turn things around. What are we what are we not doing that we should be doing? Well, well, the right thing to do is not to go out and get drunk again because you had a hangover. That's what Charlie Sheen would say on Two and a Half Men. He'd say the secret to drinking is never stop. Because as soon as you stop, you're going to get a hangover. You're going to detox and you're going to be miserable. It's better to go through the detox, get straight, same on drugs, and then get healthy again. And what would an economic detox, 
What would economic detox consist of? Banks fail, loans get written down, businesses fail, they consolidate into stronger, larger, or the, the strong organizations with good market share, low cost structures, good products, and loyal customers. People like Apple or Google, you know, they take over the weaker ones and they become bigger and stronger. The auto industry consolidated unbelievably in the Great Depression and they came out with three or four companies that ended up dominating the world. So the, we call it the winter season. It follows a fall bubble boom. Fall, the bubble booms cause a lot of growth, a lot of new business models, a lot of innovation, but it, it gets overdone with debt and overdone. Too many businesses get easy money and, and, and their business models don't work. So the winter season is here to clear the decks for spring again. Japan never allowed their debt to be leveraged, never allowed you know, this big consolidation in corporations and banks, and so they're not efficient. They still got high debt in the private sector, and they got much, much higher. They've gone from 60% to 250% of GDP of debt in the public sector. So they're greater and greater debt as their population ages more. You know, if we had a crisis, Bruce, and not, not just would companies get more efficient and a lot of debt would be flushed out and a lot of unnecessary banks that should have been around in the first place, bad loans, but consumers would get reality. We are living 20 years longer than we did when Social Security was started in the 1930s or something, especially if we reach retirement age at 63. We have to retire later. There is no way for Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security to work long term. If we keep living longer, taking more and more benefits, and retiring at age 63 on average, and then the Greeks want to retire at age 52 for crying out loud after working for 25 years or something. We're in total unreality. Why? Everybody's told us we're going to get this. The government says we got it covered. Companies say we got your pensions covered. And then all of a sudden, the economy slows down and nobody's got anything covered. Harry, Harry, we need to change should, our retirement and health care system. Yeah. And, and, and put it in line, we need to be retiring at 75, not 65. And then the retirement age needs to go up as our life expectancy go up. That would cure 70% of the problems right there. One change. But will anybody do that voluntarily? You would only do it in a crisis. Interesting. So, uh, so we're being wussies. <laughs> so harry should we should we have stemmed it right in 2008 and just not done a tarp and just let the system uh collapse and gone into a great depression it, would, would we be in a different place today if we had done that well number one yes we would already be on the other side of it the great depression was the worst depression out of many i've studied them all in u.s and world history and it only took three years to detox flush out all the debt you're saying we should have let the banking system fail in 2008 i would go one step farther I say there's a more civilized way to do it. You go to the drug analogy. You can go, if you're, if you're really a drug addict, you only got two choices. Because if you keep taking more of the drug, you are going to die or get so sick that you're going to have to go to the hospital and be forced to detox. So your real two choices are go cold turkey, and that is extremely brutal and difficult. Shake, puke, scream, whatever, sweat for three or four weeks, whatever it takes. Or you can have a doctor bring you down a little more slowly. They, they can slowly replace the addictive drug with a less addictive one or the powerful drug with a less powerful one and bring you down a little more civilized. That's what I would recommend, that if governments would take the same logic that is now, and it was a U.S. innovation that brought this, uh, uh, an integral part of our business system. In the old days, businesses went bankrupt. They just, it was just a fire sale. They throw you in debtor's prison. You never get credit again. You know, they, you know, they tar and feather you, whatever. Then they came up with Chapter 11. No. Give the company a break. Let the courts protect it for some period of time so they can have time to, to in an orderly way, sell off assets, cut expenses, uh, reorganize their business, and most importantly, restructure your debt with your major creditors. And basically what happens in a Chapter 11, for anybody that's ever seen them, you go to the creditors, protect it, so they can't just, like, get the claws on you and force you into a fire sale. And you say, look, if we go into a fire sale, guess what? We're, you're probably going to get 10 cents on the dollar. If you will restructure our debt in half, 
we can get our cash flow back to a position where we can grow again and pay off your debt. Would you rather get 10% or 50%? And the creditors almost always say, yeah, we'll take the 50%. That's a civilized way to restructure debt. And instead of the government actively preventing restructuring debt, the only reason banks have not written down loans and restructured debt are going on is because the bank keeps giving them enough money to cover all their losses and their reserves and everything. They're giving them free money. They're saying, we'll bail you out. With free money, we create... Some so you're saying that the government is just cushioning the shock of the economy, and, and that's what needs to stop. Yes, but, yeah, they're, well, they're preventing debt deleveraging. Mm-hmm. What you have to do in winter, they could help. They could give incentives. What I'd tell, if I was consulting to the government, I'd say, look, banks only get stimulus money. They only get support to the degree they actually write down business or consumer loans in the private sector. In other words... If they write down $200,000 of a mortgage from 500 to 300 so the person's no longer underwater and can make the payments, the government will say maybe take 25 cents a dollar. The government will take $50,000 of that loss, and the bank takes 150 or some ratio, mm-hmm. 30. something enough to give the bank some cushion so the banks don't just totally melt down like they did in the, ruin, in the Great Depression. But you're not succeeding if you're not writing down debt. And you're not succeeding unless some banks are going under and consolidating. Because the winter season is supposed to consolidate business into stronger units. And it's supposed to write down debt that no longer has meaning compared to financial assets that are deflating. I mean, real estate's going down and would have gone down a lot more if the government hadn't stepped in. Stocks have gone down and would have gone down a lot more if they hadn't stepped in. Financial assets got to get back down to where people can make good long-term returns again. Young couples can afford to buy houses again. See, all this deleveraging, it, it, it is painful. But the long-term benefits of reducing the cost of living, making businesses more efficient and profitable, bringing products to consumers uh, more affordable, bringing housing down to affordability is huge for young couples. And it doesn't matter to old people. They've already bought their houses and raised their kids. They may lose a little money on their house going down, but it's the young people that get huge benefits if housing can come back down. And, And again, the whole private sector, if we were to write down just the bubble debt, it was created from 2000 to 2008, and that's 22 trillion out of 42 trillion. If we just write off what I call that bullshit debt, mm-hmm. which never should have happened, and wasn't coming from increasing growth and things, it was just a bubble, and it was bad lending. When we just wrote that off, we would take about a trillion and a half a year. That's as much as our stimulus almost right now. Um, out of out of obligation, well, from principal and yeah. interest that corporations and, and households wouldn't be paying, and that's a long term stimulus that keeps working, and it doesn't require the government to keep creating money or borrowing money to create it artificial. It's real. It's dealing with the cause, not the symptoms. We are being unbelievable wusses. Us, Southern Europeans, Chinese, Japanese, everybody saying we can't have austerity, can't have austerity. Look, grow up. You're being like a six year old. Yes, you got to pay for your sins here. You got to work out this debt. You've got to restructure companies. And if you do this, guess what? We screamed out of the Great Depression. The U.S. became the most powerful, largest economy in all of history, precisely because we did the most deleveraging. We took our medicine. Keynesian economics wasn't popular then. It was only invented in the Great Depression, and we only started to embrace it in the 1970s, and we've been on a debt binge ever since. Trade deficits every year since the 1970. Budget deficits every year except for a few years under Clinton. And we predicted those surpluses, not because of Clinton, because the economy would be so strong in the late 90s. And now, you know, all these entitlements have been promised. We got sixty-six trillion in unfunded entitlements. These entitlements will never, ever, ever, ever be paid. The sooner we realize that, as painful as it will be, the sooner we can restructure those entitlements, start working longer. If we work longer, our workforce wouldn't contract so much from the aging of the baby boom generation and the fact that the next generation is younger. The workforce to seventy-five instead of sixty-three, our workforce could still grow for decades ahead. It's going to shrink otherwise. 
Yeah. And, you know, the, the middle class has already been hit and will continue to get hurt. But I think if I read you right, what you're also saying is this has got to get this. We need this crash because it's got to get to the upper income levels to where they'll finally agree. They'll finally agree that enough enough of the drug because they're they're still high. The middle class is. The middle class is crash and burn. 20% people say life is better than ever. They're shopping at Gucci's. I went down to, I have to go down for my watch. I have to go down to Miami where I used to live because Tampa doesn't have a store. I have to get my watch band replaced. And I go in there, I call them days in advance because I was going to be speaking down there. Go down there from Tampa, go there at 1 o'clock. I told them I was going to be there at 1 o'clock. It took me an hour just to get a salesperson to go get the watch band I'd already had ordered because they were so busy. And it's got to hit that level before uh, the powers that be stop encouraging the government to be given the drug. When, they, when these financial assets do go down and stocks are down 60% instead of new highs and houses are down 50 to 60%, which is what it would take to raise the bubble, and the high-end homes will be down more than that, guess who's going to get hit the most? It's not going to be Homer Simpson. The rich benefited from the bubble in incomes, financial assets, everything, business and finance, and they're going to take the biggest hits when the government lets it fail. So the government is actually... Doing what not what governments usually do. The government usually protects Main Street. They are by keeping the bubble going because they're too afraid the economy will melt down, and it would. So it's a proper fear. They are protecting the banks, financial institutions, and the top one to ten percent who made all the money in the bubble in the first place. Hmm. The ones that should that made bad loans, that made speculative investments. These are the people that should take the hits. And instead, Homer Simpson's underwater with real wages going down every year. All right, so. I want to refocus here for a minute and talk about why we are even having this discussion. What's germane about all of this to you? And uh, the first thing just to realize is what Harry's saying. Let's just go back on clarifying that answer he gave, which is that um, there has been a tremendous uh, break in the amount of debt that was accumulated. And, And I'll give you a little ancillary information here. Basically, prior to the 2008 crash, we accumulated this country was around 20 low 20 trillion dollars of private sector debt now the reason that the government printing money hasn't really created hyperinflation is it's relatively less of a player in creating money in money creation and money flow into the economy than the private sector the private banking sector is now let me give you the stat on that we basically just about doubled private sector debt over the last decade during the banking crisis, during the banking buildup and the real estate bubble. So we actually created another $20 trillion of debt. Now, Harry says when a bubble breaks, it's always got to go back to where it was. So if you ask Harry how much of that debt is going to not get paid or shake out, ultimately, he'll tell you it's all of the addition that happened during the bubble. So he's talking $20 trillion. Even if that's mitigated, you got to understand the government printing $2 trillion to cover up $20 trillion of toxic debt is not enough to create hyperinflation. And the real pressure is still that that debt is still bad debt. And so much of it wants to break. That is what keeps pulling economies back down. And that's why stimulus doesn't work. The stimulus can't replace the bad debt. There's too much bad debt. And so, although, you know, the the guys that uh, argue for hyperinflation will tell you that the Fed is so reckless that he will eventually try to replace all of it. And that their, that their viewpoint is, 
you know, uh, let no bad debt go unpaid. And Harry's saying, let them go unpaid. You invest in a debt that isn't going to get paid. You need to go broke, Mr. Banker, Mr. Real Estate Investor, Mr. Pension Fund that invested in it. Let it shake out because out the other side of it, we come out with an economy and with businesses uh, out from under this bad debt and it resets. So that's what he's saying. Now, all I'm trying to say to you is I want you to understand why the markets are buzzing. I want you to understand that, yes, we've injected a lot of crack cocaine into the system in order to get it moving again. But the tremors and the frailty underneath is still so great and has not washed away that the great concern that Harry's predicting and that I'm certainly concerned with is that all we've really done is reinflated another bubble with the original liability still underneath and that somewhere in the next few years, this bubble too will burst because the frailties have not been dealt with. Harry's saying you have to let the frailties wash away. You have to let people get hurt. You have to let the readjustment occur because you come out the other side of it with the economy awash from all that bad debt. What our government done ha- has done is canceled very little of that debt and let the debt holders suffer very little pain and try to replace it all, but they're not going to be able to. And what this means to you is that you need to just look at where you have confidence within your own portfolio. And again, let's break down savings versus investing. If you're an investor, you can afford to have losses. You know what you're doing. You know you might have losses. You're hoping for great gains. Not going to ruin your life if you don't have those great gains. But if you're a saver and the place you want to draw the line is, if I have losses on what is sitting out there at risk, is that going to... Un, unbearably change my life. And if it is, you need to realize that you've put all of your savings into investments and we still have underlying frailty. Now, you're not going to see it for a while. You know, this this drug can go a long way. Harry's been way off on some of his predictions on when the markets would fall, but I think it's underlying fundamentals here. If you listen to all this in terms of where the weaknesses are, really show you that somewhere, somehow, a day of reckoning must come. And you're going to be in one of two camps. And you should just decide, listening to this right now, which camp are you in? Just make a decision. Are you going to go forward in the camp that the government has made it all better, that the economy just needs to have enough confidence to keep moving forward, and contracting demographics can be overcome with money printing? And that the government's handled it. It's done. Or are you in the camp that mm, this might not be all that it appears to be? And I'll respect your judgment either way. If you're under the camp that it might not all be the way it appears to be, then you have to accept the fact that your investment risk may be more severe than you've than it currently looks to be. And what we're saying at Tax-Free Benefit Specialists and at Straight Talk Wealth Radio is you're probably in that position because far too much of your wealth has been left out of guaranteed growth. When I say guaranteed growth, yes, I'm talking, we used to have 8% rates. We can't find them anymore, but we still have 7% growth rates on income accounts that will have two guarantees, 
One is the guarantee of growth, and one is the guarantee of pooled risk in terms of payouts. So insurance companies generally manage that pooled risk, and they look at how many people are going to die with money left in their account versus how many people will live longer and spend all the money in the account. And based on those actuarial calculations, when we put a plan together, part of that will always include, hey, you go live a full life. This is the check you're going to get. It's guaranteed. And if you live too long and your account goes to zero and there's nothing left, we're going to continue to make those payments as long as you and your spouse are both alive. That is the third leg of the three-leg retirement stool that has been pulled out from under America. If you're wealthy and you're just worried what's going to happen overall, my suggestion is create a pension that pays all your bills. Have all your bills paid guaranteed so that all the rest of your assets can be invested with a free heart. And you never have to worry if you've screwed anything up by over-investing because your bills will be paid. And we can also gear that on an inflationary basis up to 10% that your payments will go up every year with the consumer price index, cost of living, up to 10% a year. We can gear it that way if you're worried about inflation. And boom, your needs are taken care of. And that's what we're trying to get most of America to some or lesser, greater or lesser degree Take care of your needs with a guarantee and then invest with what's left. And if it works out, improve your lifestyle, live better, but don't put yourself at risk. And the real game of the show here is we're just trying to say there's more risk than you might think today. All right. Next thing I want to do is I want to go into, uh, let's see, it's either gold or real estate. I asked Harry about next. And by the way, to get an estimate to find out what a pension looks like, how much resource do you need to put a pension together, you start with the retirement roadmap. The number for that is 888-882-5578, 888-882-5578. At the end of this uh, segment, we will have a little bit more on how the retirement roadmap works, but uh, that's the number to call. All right, so I asked Harry about the real estate market. Um, there are some stats if you read our emails. And by the way, when you go to our website, www.straighttalkwealth.com, I haven't pushed that enough here, www.straighttalkwealth.com. Get on our email list because we have a lot of great bulletins that we put out. We bring uh, weekly, we try to do it weekly, all of this news and uh, analysis together that you can use. And, and a lot of strategies that we come up with that will overcome, thwart, or be of great advantage to you. So there's a lot of great information. We put that out for free every week that I can get around to compiling it, and it's very current and newsy. So make sure you go to our website, put your uh, email address in there. The reason I brought that up is because we just recently did uh, an article from studying off of Harry's information here about what's happening in the real estate market. Now, I'm going to, I think Harry's going to cover most of this, but you should know that the real estate market right now is being propelled mostly by speculators that are buying swaths of houses. After I revealed in the newsletter that mortgage applications really hadn't gone up, it's not new, it's not organically people, home buyers coming back into the market, it's speculators buying home, um, and that there's a huge shadow inventory of foreclosures that banks have not foreclosed on a couple personal stories. I'll get back to Harry. One was that we had a gentleman come into my 
seminar recently tell me he owned a condo in Florida, hasn't paid the mortgage for years on it. He's got renters in there and the banks aren't coming after him to foreclose. They're not doing that because they're leaving a lot of foreclosures unknown on the market so they can keep prices high. But we're more than we're about triple the normal rate of foreclosures of normalcy in this country. And the banks aren't touching them because they don't want to depress house prices anymore. Another gentleman wrote in recently from that newsletter and said, Hey, by the way, I know a lady here down in Orange County, California, and she had her home foreclosed. She asked the bank what happened to it. They said they sold it to an investor who bought 20 homes for $350,000. It was sold for. She accidentally met the investor and he said, don't believe 350. They gave me a 30% discount for buying 20 properties. So the market is actually 30% lower than what the bank is recording that sale as. That being said, it is just one more place that the actual weakness of this debt bubble that has not been written off and not been wiped out, where the weakness of it is still producing a mirage uh, and a bit of a delusion about how things really are and how well we're recovering. Again, I'm not trying to be a doomer and gloomer. All I'm trying to say is that if we are in another bubble and we see a final collapse down to reality, you're going to be in trouble if you're overly invested in this bubble and you don't have some sort of asset that's guaranteed and non-correlated to the current bubble. All right, let's hear from Harry. Well, Harry, I want to just touch on a couple sectors real quick and let you go here. Uh, just kind of making the rounds on a few sectors. Let's talk about real estate. Uh, you mentioned your last newsletter, housing is the brightest sector of the economy and thus has led to increased jobs after lagging for so long. Um, we're going to continue to see growth in real estate or uh, is there any ticking time bombs there? No, no, I think there's a lot of ticking time bombs. First of all, we just developed a new model. Just like the economy, we do a 46-year lag for peak in spending, and that shows when the overall economy is going to grow with generations and slow and stock markets with it. Well, housing peaks earlier, about age 41, 42. So traditionally, we just do a 41, 42-year lag and say, okay, here's when housing will do better or not. Well, I started realizing when Japan's housing market never bounced back when the new generation, younger generation came on. Let me stop you for a second, Harry. You say the, the lag you're talking about is the lag between the birth rate and, and the peak housing demand years. And, and so, you know, you know, for marriage, it's age 26. For camping equipment, it's age 40. You know, for housing, it's 41. Uh, for vacation homes, it's 65. I mean, you know, we can tell you cradle to grave when people spend the most money on just about anything. So your demand curve for housing is uh, most major with heads of households at 41 years of age when you say yeah. 41. Okay, good. Just want to clarify and, and, and that's why housing tends to peak several years before the overall economy. In 1929, boom, housing peaked in 25. The economy peaked in early 30. About five-year difference. So okay. that's what's causing that. So we would normally do a 42-year lag, and that 42-year lag would say housing's probably going to go down another 10% in the next year or two, and then it's going to slowly turn around, but it'll never be the same because the echo boom is nowhere near the relative size or wave as the baby boom. But then I started seeing Japan, where Japan had that generation come along around 2002, and it should have been buying more houses into 2015, and guess what? Housing prices kept going down, and I finally realized, holy smokes, for the first time in history, a smaller generation is following a larger one. This has never happened since the Great Plague or something in the 1300s. Mm-hmm. And when that sense housing is, is different from department store goods and food and most stuff we buy, it lasts forever. So when you get to the point where there's more old couples dying than young couples forming families and buying houses, you're going to have supply outpaced demand from demographics. 
and and, and that's why Japan that, that that just when their echo baby boom got into a buying stage, their baby boom got older faster than we have because they peaked much earlier, mm-hmm. and they're offsetting the demand of this younger generation. So home prices have stayed flat to bounce. So that echo boom has not brought back the demand for at least housing in Japan, and your concern in the United States that the echo boom is not substantial enough to replace the baby boom. And we're just going to continue to see more people dying and leaving the house behind than people want to buy. Now, and, and the reason housing's growing right now, and, and, and people don't get that they're idiots, because they're even admitting this on CNBC. In, institutional investors, Blackstone, pension funds, they're the ones buying all these foreclosed houses and deals and turning around and renting. And even them, now they're doing that so much, they're crowding out the little guy, because I've known a lot of individuals that go and buy one house here, one house there, fix it up, rent it, or sell it for mm-hmm. them. They can't even do it anymore. They're getting outbid. Only 30% of the home sales are coming from first-time buyers. That's normally 60% of the market. Consumers are not driving this housing recovery. Extremely low interest rates, government stimulus, and the fact that all these people got all this money sloshing around that they can't make. I mean, again, everybody's trading up to higher-yield investments because you can't make any money on a safe investment anymore. So all these funds are buying houses now, how long can they do that if, they, if there aren't real consumers buying them? They're already pulling back on that because the rental market's getting too competitive now that so many people are doing the same thing. So all of this is unsustainable. The Fed keeps the bubble going as long as they can with extreme low interest rates, tons of money and liquidity pumped in the economy. It's got to go somewhere, so it goes into all the speculative investment, you know, stocks, commodities, gold, buying houses and flipping them, buying houses and renting them, all this stuff. You just create another bubble, and then it finally bursts. The question is, when does it burst? I've got my estimates, like later this year, starts to burst. But, you know, the government is actively trying to prevent any bubble from bursting, any slowdown in the economy, any major banks or corporations from failing. And this is exactly what needs to and is supposed to and has historically happened in the winter seasons, like the 1930s, 1870s, 1830s, and 40s. I mean, you go back, and, and, and these things clean out the economy. It is a big detox, and it makes the economy much stronger long-term. So, you know, no pain, no gain. Harry, uh, So this is not going to end well, from my view. Yeah, I got that. I got that. Okay, stick with us. We have two segments left on the interview with Harry, and um, very important segments. We're going to, in a minute, talk about gold, touch on that. Uh, what's happened to gold? Uh, why did gold not hold up to predictions? Is Will we be seeing more of it in the future rising again, or is it going to continue to fall? And then the last one is really a look from Harry's perspective on what should the average working person be doing today? What is it that they should be trying to do in order to survive and prosper in the coming decade. So let's get into this gold segment. Real quick, what's your take on gold? Uh, you wrote in your newsletter, does Japan's aggressive QE policy set off currency wars with South Korea, China, Europe, and the U.S.? Does gold finally explode ahead of languishing for almost two years? What's your take on gold right now, Harry? Well, you know what I think? Just that, I mean, gold in the chart patterns, which is one thing I have to look at, gold had a huge run from uh, late 2008 into early 2011. I mean, just a massive run. And then it went sideways in, in a channel for, for two years. I'm telling you, nine out of ten times, a chart pattern like that breaks back up and, and, and makes a final high. And, and it didn't do it. It stayed in between 1525 and 1800 for, for two years. One down, up, down. And then suddenly it just broke through that 1525 support like it wasn't there. I know what's happening when that happens. Hedge funds on high leverage, 30 to 40 times leverage, made a big bet on gold just like they did oil into 2008, and when it started going down, they're forced to just dump this stuff on margin calls. So there's no rationality about it. It's no like, oh, there's support at 1,500. No, it just falls enough that, hey, you're 30 times leverage. 
here's a margin call, you've got to sell. Mm. And so gold broke down. Uh, but there's two other things fundamentally that happen. Indians and Chinese together buy 52% of the gold in the world. We're, we're nothing. We, Germany, major countries are nothing compared to their demand. And it's not just gold bars for investment. Even more of it is jewelry, especially Indians. Well, the Indians saw their rupee go down in 2012 in value. Gold went up for them, and their gold purchases slowed for the first time in a long time. So that was one of the reasons gold was weak. Um, and, and, you know, the second reason is that I think the gold market finally got it. And this is what we've been arguing for years. You're not going to create, I don't care how much stimulus you have, you're not going to create much inflation in a deflationary environment in a winter season. And, and I think the gold markets also finally got, man, we just saw QE3 and QE4 from the United States that followed, you know, the LTRO, massive LTRO in Europe before that. And now Japan just went off the reservation two and a half times the rate of the U.S. or Europe. Uh, and, 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 and inflation has been trending down recently. They, they, I think the markets finally got, we're not going to get inflation out of this. And if we don't mm-hmm. get inflation, gold is not going to benefit. Gold wants inflation. It's a bet on inflation not deflation. And we've always said gold's going to probably go back to $250 or at least 750 but probably all the way back to its lows in 98-2000 because it's a bubble and people are piling into it thinking it's going to protect them against the financial crisis. And we used to tell people, look at 2008 when we actually had a meltdown. In late 2008, gold was down 33% in a matter of months. Oil was down 80%. Silver down 50%. Hard assets and commodities did not protect you. Real estate's another hard asset. It went down in the deflationary environment all financial assets go down. So gold does not protect you. Being in the U.S. dollar protects you. Cash protects you. Um, you know, that's the only things that went up in very high-quality bonds. That's it. Everything else goes down. Now, I know that sounds completely counterintuitive to everything that you have been indoctrinated by, by, by some of the smartest guys that see the problem with the Fed printing money and disrupting the economy. This is where Harry's different, and and it's important to understand, which is the gaping hole of that private debt that I mentioned is so wide. That is a deflationary sucking sound that is trying to pull asset values out of the economy and debt values out of the economy. The Fed has put $2 trillion in. That scared people because they thought that's going to inflate the money supply. But the banks aren't putting it into the economy, and it's not getting into Main Street except by inflating the stock market because the institutions don't want to lend that. They don't want to let everybody have free money besides the fact that demographically, I'll tell you, uh, the consumer is not coming back as baby boomers go. We don't care if you give us free money. We don't want more debt. So someone has to be willing to borrow that money from the banks. And Bernanke just made sure they had enough money to loan. Somebody needs to be able to borrow that in order to get things into hyper gear. But it, it, it's not desirous to being borrowed. So the institutions that can leverage it, leverage it into stocks. And the whole point with gold is that gold was certain. The play on gold was a certain play that we're going to have hyperinflation. This money printing is going to just flood uh, the market with dollars and dollars are going to be worthless. But the fact is there's still that sucking sound and that has kept it from happening. And Harry's contention all along is until that breaks, until we have the crash that we don't get our way bought out of by the government until we have that crash, that pressure will continue to be there and make dollars not flow in the economy 
because the people that have been given those dollars know darn well they've got so much other liability on the books, they're not interested in loaning out greater liability. If they take all the money they've been given and loan it out, and the earlier loans still go bad, or the economy still doesn't turn around because of all the free money they've now given out, they're going to lose both the new free money and the old money. So it's just it's just being held on to. And that's the actual thing that you need to change. You're thinking about a little bit on this inflation deflationary play. By the way, I can't believe I haven't mentioned it already. Very, very important. I publish a complete pictorial report. I write this so a high school sophomore can understand it. It is 50 pages long. We just revised it in 2013 for the new triggers that we talked about here earlier with Harry are in this report. It will give you a complete understanding of these inflationary and deflationary spirals and how the how the crisis got started, why the crisis is deflationary. And it includes in it a strategy within a single portfolio to manage both concerns inflation and deflation simultaneously because let me tell you the name of the all of your planning these days really boils down to are you planning for an inflationary catastrophe or deflationary catastrophe and if you call that shot wrong you will lose all of it in the report which you can get by call our main office on that which is 818-249-7249 or email us. You can email me, Bruce, at straighttalkwealth.com. And we'll make sure you get a copy of the report. If you go on YouTube, you will see uh, Harry's endorsement of our report. And that will take you to a landing page where you can order it. Watch Harry's endorsement on YouTube. He talks about our report. Our YouTube channel is Straight Talk Wealth Radio. And uh, if you just type in Straight Talk Wealth Radio, it'll take you to our channel. And you'll see the video there of Harry talking about the report that I wrote on inflation versus deflation. I take this material and I break it down so it's easy to understand. And I also look at what you can do about it. Get that report. It will give you a lot of enlightenment. And lastly, let's now play what Harry recommends people should be concerned about and what strategies and what they should be doing in order to protect themselves from what's to come if this all does come crashing down because it's propped up by stimulus that can't go on forever. I titled this clip on my hard drive, what the average guy should do. Um, Harry, our listeners are, are working people. They're, they're, they're not necessarily the ultra wealthy. I don't know that they uh, have AM radios in their cars anymore. But um, in the working class, in, in people that are out there on the line trying to save for retirement and thinking about uh, just achieving that goal of retiring one day, within that class, who's going to get hurt if this party comes to, to an end? Well, you know, the middle class has taken most of its hits. I mean, I think housing is going to go down further. If the world economy goes down uh, in the next few years, and I think it's going to, housing will dip and it will go lower. So there will be some more pain there. But a lot of people have already taken pain uh, or, or have already, you know, restructured their mortgage and gotten lower payments or something. But there will be more pain there. And to the degree that people get back in their 401K and an in investment plan and get back into stocks and gold and financial assets, there's going to be a lot of pain. So, the discipline, and it's hard. I mean, now that things have bubbled up so much again, there's, I, I look at the stock market as 5% on the upside, 10% at best, and 60% or more on the downside. That's not a good risk-reward ratio. You've got to resist the temptation. A lot of everyday investors jump out when the bubble burst, and they've been slow to get back in. Don't get back in now. I think the markets are going a little higher into the summer, and then I think this bubble, this bubble looks like it's close to 
getting to bursting time again. And, and boy, you don't want to get caught in another 50 to 60% crash. So the name of the game, you believe, right now for the working class is, is preservation as opposed to... Uh... Yeah, preserve the capital you got. And then when things crash again, then you can reinvest. And then you got to reinvest in the right places. I mean, India, Southeast Asia is probably going to come out of this the best because they're not big commodity exporters like Latin America and in the Middle East and Africa. Healthcare segments, you know, especially biotech and medical devices and, and things like that uh, in healthcare are going to benefit from the baby boom continuing to age. You know, RVs are going to do well. I mean, there's, there's, if you can get in the sectors that do well as baby boomers move in their 60s and 70s, then you're going to get a stronger bounce than if you just buy companies that are going to continue to see slowing demand for cars and houses and, and you know, basic goods, clothing and stuff, because that's just going to continue to slow. So, you know, you, you gotta, you gotta, if you're not the smart money, you gotta think like the smart money. That's what we try to do for people. Say, look, you don't have to be sophisticated to understand these big cycles and demographics and geopolitical cycles and, and, and even there's some very important 10 year cycles and four year cycles. Things that could just tell you, get the odds in your favor. Nobody, I can't tell you the exact top and bottom. I can make guesses, but we can tell you when there's more danger. We're saying the biggest danger we see coming is between late 2013 and early 2015, and then the second danger cycle is, is around late 2017 to early 2020. And if we see a crash into 2014 or 15, then you can invest again for a while. And then if things bubble up again, then you got to have the discipline to get out. But you can't just sit in the markets anymore and expect the markets to go up, and you can't listen to the standard stockbroker that says, oh, we got you diversified asset allocation, we'll save you. I asked you, how did it do in 2008 when everything went down except for the U.S. dollar index and well, your treasury bonds? Everything went down, including real estate. How, how did asset allocation work? Asset allocation works most of the time, but not in the winter season. Okay, Harry. Well, I really appreciate your time. It's been a great interview, and uh, let's see. Uh, let's see. If we can get some uh, people over to uh, the Irrational Economics Summit in La Jolla, November sixth through the eighth. Okay. All right. Take care. Okay. Bye bye. Okay, we're gonna wrap it up. Thanks for listening. I hope this was informative on our super longest CD podcast show we've ever done. Uh, listen, uh, stay tuned. I'm going to wrap up the show here at the end of this. Uh, if you're listening on CD or on podcast, there will be a special segment where I talked with Harry about the Irrational Economics Summit. Uh, you can get in touch with us or go to hsdent.com to sign up for that. We would love to have you along. Stay in touch with us. I might be able to get discounts, I'm hoping, but I don't know. And uh, listen, go to the website, sign up for our uh, mailing list. We've got emails going out routinely about different news and economic events and strategies. A lot of fast-breaking stuff in this field uh, that is starting to be non-correlative uh, types of investments that don't correlate to the mess that's coming in the stock market. Uh, so that's going to be good information. Um, always new stuff on the website. New shows get posted there. StraightTalkWealth.com, get on a mailing list. Get my free report, Inflation or Deflation, America's Monetary System in Crisis, and how to plan for it. Okay, see you again. Thanks for listening. Stay in touch. We'll let you know when we have new CDs come out if you're on our mailing list. And uh, here's some stuff on the Irrational Economic Summit. Harry, you're actually doing a Irrational Economic Summit in uh, La Jolla at the Torrey Pines. Uh, looks like this is scheduled for November 6th through the 8th. Can you tell me a little bit about what you guys are going to talk about there and what's happening? Yeah, you know, obviously I and uh, my partner Rodney Johnson will be speaking, and, and, you know, we have a very different view of the world and what's going to happen here, deflation versus inflation, 
uh, endless government stimulus plans are not going to work at some point, and, and you know people have to have strategies for what we call a world turned upside down. And we're going to have a lot of other speakers. Uh, we're working on that now, but you know people who have different investment uh, and alternatives and economists who think more like we do, and some people are going to disagree with us on some things, but we want to give people a full array of, look, here's what's happening, here's kind of the truth about, you know, this world, and, and you just can't sit here and watch TV anymore and believe, you know, Warren Buffett thinks everything's okay, so everything's okay, and, you know, economists think the Fed's doing the right thing. I mean, I, I was in a debate on CNBC with a guy, Ron Insana, and he called the QE policies endless money creation, enlightened policies, and I almost fell off my chair and puked. You know, I'm like, how stupid can you be to think that covering over problems with endless money printing out of nowhere, you know, totally irresponsible stuff is enlightened. You know, all it is is, is treating the symptoms and not the causes. So, you know, we look at what caused this, uh, what's going to happen, how bubbles develop, how they always burst, you know, what the principles of bubbles are, why there's going to be deflation as an end game here and not inflation. And believe me, I go to conference after conference speaking, and all the people that agree with us on, on the debt crisis and, and the, the level of debt, the unsustainability, every single one of them tells them the dollar's going to crash and gold's going to go to $5,000. Well, ever since this crisis started, you know, the dollar's only trended up, not down, and gold is starting to crash, as we've been warning, because people are realizing you're not going to get inflation in a deflationary debt deleveraging environment, you're going to only get very modest inflation at best with massive amounts of stimulus, which clearly tells me I don't see how anybody could see anything other than deflation as the trend here. Yeah, well I want to go I want to go more into that in a minute here. I want to break that down, but also I'm just curious, this conference is being done a little bit differently than ones that you've done before. In the past I believe you've sort of kept this to a, a network of advisors and this one's being opened up a lot more to the public and business owners. Is am I right about that? Yes, yes, that's right. The people who are on our newsletters and our mailing lists and things like that, uh, who follow us, like you say, a lot of business entrepreneurs, a lot of financial advisors, business owners, high net worth investors. I mean, that's the people. We don't attract kind of the corporate crowd and the corporate training crowd and that sort of stuff. And, uh, you know, they listen to the well-known economists who all say nothing and say the same thing. Um, and, and look at symptoms. So you know, if you really don't want to understand the economy, you listen to us and then we choose the best people we find who we think you need to hear as well uh, to round out the uh, you know the consideration so, and to understand your options. Yeah, so this is an opportunity for uh, a, a lot of uh, a much broader spectrum of uh, uh, of an audience to be able to come and uh, participate with you and get to meet you and and understand a little bit better where you guys are talking about than maybe just the financial advisors that have kind of glommed to you in the past. Yeah, we're looking at having hundreds, and uh, you'll probably eventually build this conference up to you know like a thousand people. Like we're we're only targeting four hundred for this one because it's the first time we've opened this up, and we don't want to. You know, overestimate. You know, we got a hotel that works there that's great in La Jolla, so we can only take 400 people this time. But we're ultimately looking probably to build this up to a thousand. Well, we're uh, we're we're gonna uh, try to get all our listeners there, and uh, folks, m- maybe Harry will cut me a deal. We'll talk later. The Dow Jones Industrial Average it ends the week higher. For more details, let's go to Deborah Kostrin at the NYSE. Deborah, thanks a lot, Pim. And it was our third straight weekly gain for stocks. The government is actually a source of our problems. That the stimulus is not the solution. The stimulus is why the economy is so messed up in the first place. And stop the spending and stop the money printing. And we have to let free market forces repair the damage done to this economy by government. If we keep talking about the economy, we're going to lose. Look, 
Why is your entire financial future tied to events that you can neither predict or control? We know these are different times today. After two horrific crashes in stocks, in the tech bubble of 2000 and the banking crisis of 2008, most investors are no further ahead today on gains than they were 10 years ago. Sure, when the market's up, we forget that risk and loss has ever happened. We want to believe that the good times will last forever. So has the government made it all better now? Or could the other shoe drop once again, once the government stimulus, zero interest rates, and quantitative easing all run their course? What would happen to you if the next market bubble were to burst, right when you were planning to retire, or worse yet, you already are retired, and a market setback that doesn't rebound forces you to confront a change in your lifestyle? But the fact is, there is a solution to risk without giving up growth. What if your safe money, the money that you plan to live on one day, the money you can't afford to have losses with, could actually outperform your investments? Think that means getting 2% in CDs at the bank? Well, think again. The safe money concepts your Straight Talk Wealth Advisor can help you with carry two unprecedented guarantees that bank CDs can't even come close to. One, until you need to spend it, the value of your money for future income will double every 10 years at 7 to 8% rates, guaranteed. Did you double the value of your stocks and mutual funds in the last 10 years? Two, when you need to draw down your funds to live on, you will receive that income as long as you and your spouse both live even if your account value has been entirely withdrawn down to zero. You never have to worry about spending down your principal in retirement ever again. Want to see how this kind of safe money concept can work in your portfolio? Would you like to see a specific proposal on how you can protect your wealth and prepare and prosper in the coming decade of change in America? Call now to 888-882-5578, 888-882-5578, and request your Straight Talk Wealth Retirement Roadmap for no charge and no obligation. It's a two-minute call. You simply leave your contact information with the operator and two times one of our Straight Talk Wealth advisors to call you back during the week. They'll call you back later in the week to ask you six basic questions to get a financial snapshot of your situation. When do you want to retire? Or are you already retired? What level of income will you need at retirement to preserve your lifestyle? What resources will you have to get there? And specifically, what rate of return will be required to meet those needs? Find out by calling 888 5578 now. That's 888 Within a week, your advisor will have prepared your personalized retirement roadmap study for no charge and no obligation. From your study, you'll see how by increasing the rates of return you can get on your safe money, it reduces the pressure you need on the rest of your investment portfolio that you may leave at risk. Call 888 888- 
Receive our specific illustrated plan to steer you through the economic and financial minefield of potential market volatility, inflationary or even deflationary pressures of this country in the next decade. Get a personalized plan based on your specific situation, needs, and your goals for no cost and no obligation. Call 888-882-5578. 888-882-5578. That's 888-882-5578. So tonight I'd like to talk about the economy. Content of Straight Talk Wealth Radio is for educational purposes only. Any discussion on financial products and their features is subject to change without notice. Consult your own tax, legal, or financial advisor as to your specific situation. Tax-free benefit specialist and insurance services, California license 0E48147.